Okay, hello everyone, and welcome to Chat with the Designers, your live, online, interactive, bi-weekly magazine for hams, homebrewers, and experimenters across the fruited plains. This is episode number 80, 8-0, and uh, um, we are here today with uh, my... My uh, co-host, Joe, N2CX, and I am George, N2APB, and we are really pleased to bring you the third installment of the Elmer 101 series. And this is, of course, the um, instructional step-by-step uh, -step type of walkthrough of the Small Wonder Labs uh, SW30 Plus transceiver, uh, the classic from Dave Benson. K1SWL, which started off back, oh gosh, now I've forgotten what we put uh, earlier in earlier episodes here, but it started uh, back in the 70s. Joe, was it that early in the 70s or maybe the, maybe the 80s? I think it was the 80s. Back when Dave was NN1G and uh, very, uh, very, well, it was earlier, and I don't know how earlier he published, was published in ARRL handbooks and and uh, QST and so on, but he published his 4040 transceiver design, an elegant, um, low uh, low part count, but uh, very good quality um, kit, uh, transceiver kit, uh, actually transceiver design, and uh, others have... Uh, kitted it along the way, in, including David. And uh, this is the design that we picked up, along with many others in the field of uh, the QRP and homebrewing field, have focused on using the SW30 as the Elmer 101 uh, project. And uh, we are, we here in chat with the designers are perhaps the fifth, maybe even the sixth, uh, group to pick up the mantle of Elmer 101 and go through this design. Um, we are excited to do it here because this is uh, um, a different medium and perhaps a more lasting medium, and we can be building on the shoulders of those who have done this before us, yet still taking our own twists and uh, explanations and uh, hopefully guiding our members along the way, uh, along their path of, of building the SW30 plus. Now we have uh, we have made the kit available in earlier episodes of the Elmer 101 series here on Chat with the Designers. Unfortunately, the kit run is done. Um, there are no more. However, we're scraping together some parts, and uh, we may be able to at some point in the near future make a couple extra ones available, but certainly not on a wide scale basis. Uh, we have some circuit boards left, such that if you wanted to, if anybody wanted to get a bare circuit board for um, a very inexpensive amount, you can get the parts on your own. Um, we have the actually, well, we've got the parts list published, and I still have got to get the uh, part numbers and the vendor sources up there on the parts list in the manual. But nonetheless, we'll get that there, so you can just kind of. Go down the list and order your parts from Mauser and DigiKey mostly, and get your own parts. Uh, a little bit of extra effort, but 
If you want to make yourself a version for 40 meters, a version for 10 meters, and so on, you can do that. Um, it's fun to see the same principles that we're going through here in the 101 series exemplified in um, other bands uh, versions of the uh, of the S of the Small Wonder Labs uh, transceiver. Um, so it's kind of fun too. Maybe if you have a mind to make up different versions and stack them one over the other, that that certainly is a possibility. Or maybe you have just one that you want to experiment with and use it as your own learning and experimentation platform. Along with uh, Golly, Joe, um, we have a couple of accessories that were available. They're, no, they're not available directly from us any longer, but maybe you could just uh, maybe touch on some of the options that we had, uh, we've had available so far, and maybe a couple that you and I have been talking about going forward. Yeah, sure. Um, some of the options are, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I, we may still have some of the uh, cases available. It's a... Um, case designed by, um, I keep forgetting his call, A-0-Z-Z, I think it is, um, Craig, Craig Johnson. Uh, very clever case that is uh, made of printed circuit board um, with a red solder mask on it. It comes in a sheet that breaks apart and has tabs on it so that you can put it together and um, um, tack solder the pieces together, make a really snazzy kit. The picture at the beginning of um, uh, this week's segment um, shows that uh, kit, or I'm sorry, that case that uh, the radio insta is installed into, and it has, uh, uh, is that you, George? Nope. No, I guess not. Yeah, go ahead, George. No, that's not. Anyway, um, it has silk screening on it, um, customized to the, uh, um, to the SW30+. Plus. And um, there's been some discussion may come to pass. We may have um, a, an additional case um, with no marking on it that uh, could be customized for other projects. I think it's a very handy, uh, very handy case. The other thing is uh, a what's called a Freakmite, which is a, a little microprocessor uh, frequency counter that has an audio enunciator on it that looks at the um, the VFO in the uh, radio and um, audibly um, sends the frequency in Morse code on the audio stream through, you, through the audio channel. Very handy thing, uh, uh, so you don't, you don't have to look at the uh, dial on the front of the radio, and you get a very, very precise indication of the uh, frequency within, I think, 100 hertz. Um, there are other things people have added uh, on their own. Uh, for example, an RIT, Receiver Integral Tuning, we don't do that, um, but there is information available on the web. If you look at some of the older uh, mods on the uh, NN1G rigs, there, uh, there are uh, RIT uh, mods available. Uh, and uh, some of the guys have been talking about doing other things, not necessarily part of this project, but uh, doing it on their own. I know that uh, Mike WB8BXN, uh, uh, or W8, WA8BXN has been um, uh, experimenting with uh, using an Arduino and a DDS to control the frequency. And I think George has some thoughts along those lines. He may be uh, playing with that as well. So it's a good platform for experimentation. You can add goodies to it. Uh, and uh, ah, the other thing is a uh, um, 
the Morse code gear uh, used with a paddle that um, some folks have added to theirs. I think um, the um, four states QRP group has a uh, uh, Morse uh, gear uh, that uh, can be added to just about any rig. And uh, we don't necessarily have mounting provisions or, or anything for it for this rig, but uh, could be added as well to, uh, to extend the uh, usefulness. I use an external gear with mine, but it would be nice to have an internal built-in gear as well. Um, and, uh, you know, it is a good uh, vehicle for experimentation. Others have added uh, power amps. The uh, stock radio puts out about 2 watts, but you can take it up to the um, QRP gallon of 5 watts. Or indeed, um, if you have the right power amp, you can take it up uh, as high as you want to go. I think uh, George has, uh, has used an RF power cube to take his to 20 watts. Uh, and it, it sounds good on the air. He has worked me, uh, worked me on the air with a darn thing. Sounds good. So uh, a variety of things you can do. Use this as a base and uh, just build out from there. Back to you, George. Yeah, fine business, Joe. Thanks. And um, just to, to clarify, it's on the page, but um, Craig is uh, all out now of the red enclosures. However, um, there's a blank enclosure, that version that he is uh, working on. We are prototyping. Not that there's too much to prototype, but it's always good to get a, a prototype run to be sure things are as you think they are. So um, he's going to be making that available soon from his uh, from him from his, from his lab. Um, but we, of course, will be pointing to it and endorsing it. And I've already got my order in small 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 o order for a bunch of them because I plan on stacking these things up and putting some of these enclosure of these options that Joe was talking about um, into a mating red enclosure. Um, and even if you missed the first, if you didn't get an enclosure for your kit and you still wish to have one, or maybe, for example, for your extra kit, your extra board that you're going to build up, um, it's, real, it's real simple just to make the appropriate holes in it and you'll have something that's pretty darn looking, pretty darn like what you see there on the web page. So that's that's certainly a possibility. Making your own labels is a is a trivial task, but having an enclosure right there to contain that transceiver or another transceiver, another of the single board transceivers in, on your bench. I don't know if you've, uh, if you're like Joe and me, we've got like a lot of these things over the years, and some of them are favorites, and it's nice to get them into little enclosures or to put other stuff in them. Uh, we've talked about before the chat with the designers, GPSDO, the GPS Disciplined Oscillator Frequency Standard. You know, that would go really nicely in here, too, in one of these blank enclosures, in addition to, of course, what we have planned with that project, which is coming along very shortly, too, by the way. We'll be finishing that one up in, uh, during the next month. And... Uh, but that's just another idea for things that you could be putting into uh, the given enclosure. Craig is also working on some special design with uh, with uh, maybe with the, the four state QRP group. And I see Johnny is here. Really nice to have you with us. ACB, sorry, AC0BQ. Uh, the four state QRP group was kind enough and, and really had a ball with them as far as uh, partnering to get the uh, frequency mite, the freak mite, 
the audio frequency and enunciator, the audio dial, if you will, uh, that many of you got to go along with this project. And just a simple push button um, triggers the PIC microcontroller to um, insert the Morse code enunciation, the Morse code, the Morse code of the frequency that you're currently dialed to. It injects it into the audio chain, and you actually hear it through the ear, uh, your earphones that are plugged in. So that's a really nice addition. Anyways, the whole point was that uh, this is what we call a seminal project, meaning that um, it's used as a baseline starting point for many other things along the way. Most of the things are not new, but I think as technology has marched forward since maybe the last time that this whole topic of Elmer 101 was addressed, we have different ways of, of measuring the signals and seeing the results on our um, and our digital oscilloscopes or with some of the probing and other instrumentation that we have uh, um, with it. We have other types of technology that we can add on as accessories. Great example. I think, Joe, you mentioned the Arduino. There are a couple of uh, hams that are working right now on really interesting um, addition of uh, an Arduino to the SW30, case in point. And uh, using it, the Arduino, in place of the local oscillator or as a way to control the local oscillator, thus providing some programmable features and repeatability and, uh, well, heck, just kind of plain fun doing things in a different way. That's the name of the game. So um, what we thought we'd do here first is, before we kick off the show tonight, is to talk about kind of where we've been and uh, maybe some of the experiences that we've had along the way, different builders have had along the way. And um, heck, at the end of last episode, there was some really good well, uh, discussion after after we closed down. Actually, I called it the after party, which is turning out to be more common uh, every time we do the chat with the designer series. Uh, a number of us hang on afterwards and just talk about different stuff. And in this case, it was related to the SW30 project. And there were a couple of points that I thought would be really interesting and fun to at least surface on here um, here on the show this time and uh, maybe solicit some other you know input along the way, too. Um, one of the episodes, Joe, I'm not sure if you stuck around for this point, but, uh, I think you've got your own, your own thought about this too, is, uh, how to handle, well, first of all, toroid winding. Let's just talk about toroid winding. Now, Joe, this is a perennial, um, topic with us homebrewers. Uh, sometimes it's a big nemesis. Sometimes it turns your fingers to mush as you're holding onto these little suckers and putting the wire through, but, uh. Um, there are a couple of, well, shoot, there's maybe uh, three or four, I forgot now, Tories to wind, um, in this project. And, uh, I don't know what, what's been your experience with, uh, the Toroids, uh, Joe, as a, as a veteran kit and design assembler kind of guy. Oh, yeah. Toroids are always fun. I can remember way back when. Good Lord, I think how many years ago it was that uh, toroids, um, RF toroids became available for hams. And uh, I latched on them right away because it's a good way to build a fairly repeatable uh, inductor. 
um, and get some decent performance out of it. Fairly high Q uh, in a small space. Qs are on the order of 200 or so. Um, some air core coils in special isolated um, uh, compartments and all that can can approach uh, thousands, but um, 200 is a good number. Um, they're a little fussy to, to uh, wind, as small as they are, and it takes um, takes a little bit of dexterity to uh, wind them. Um, and you have to be very careful in counting turns. Uh, one wire pass through the toroid is one turn. Um, that's the uh, that's that's the magic number. And um, counting them is always fun, particularly if there are many many turns there. Uh, I tend to forget what they, I, I'm doing sometimes if I've got a toroid with 30 turns on there. So I always use a um, um, digital camera or even the uh, camera on my phone to take a photo and blow it up so that I can count the turns to see exactly how many I have. Uh, one of the other things a lot of folks have noticed is that um, the effective inductance of the toroids changes depending on how the turns are spaced. Ideally, for best Q, you want to have um, the windings take up about three-quarters of, uh, of the periphery of the toroid. But as you stretch them together or pull them apart, um, spread them apart, um, the effective uh, inductance changes because of the uh, self-capacitance, the capacitance between the turns. So that affects the, uh, the resonant frequency of the uh, tuned circuit that the inductor is uh, put into. Um, so you can, you can uh, do minor tweaks to get exactly the right tuning you need just by spreading the turns or uh, pinching them closer together. And um, as I get older, uh, as I mentioned, it takes more dexterity to put the darn um, uh, windings on, the turns on. And um, sometimes your fingers cramp up, so just got to take it uh, slow and easy. One other thing that um, we did in this um, in this kit is we use um, solderable magnet wire. Um, if you heat the wire with a solder blob on the end of your um, um, soldering iron, the insulation melts away so you can get a good stripping job. You don't have to worry about scraping with a knife or with uh, sandpaper. You can heat strip the, uh, the wires as opposed to the older uh, enamel used um, in earlier years. It makes it very handy to um, strip the um, strip the wire so that when you uh, go to solder it, you get a good solder joint on the PC board. Um, that makes all the difference in the world. I've done it um, professionally where um, um worked for a company who built kits and uh, we pre-wound the toroids. And we even had a solder pot, this pot with a bunch of molten solder in it so that we pretend the leads for the uh, kit builders to uh, ease the job. But, you know, for onesie twosie stuff, the soldering iron works works fine. And um, toroids do a good job. Just takes a little patience and uh, paying attention to what you're doing. And, uh, you know, if you try to do three or four in a row in one sitting, um, maybe you get tired of it. You set it aside and come back to it when uh, when your fingers are a little more nimble and your uh, your wits are uh, a bit uh, bit fresher. And um, that's how it is with swords. It sure is indeed. I'll tell you, you end up with numb fingers um, if you do a lot of them. But I mean, for a handful of torrids here, taking your time <clears throat> and uh, 
just counting, making sure you keep track of the, the counts. And even if you do, you just use a, a magnifying glass to figure out how many times the wire actually goes through the center of the toroid um, is a good indicator, a double check on the counts. You mentioned the RF power cube. Over over time, I've been uh, doing, I've been preparing the uh, toroids in advance, winding the toroids in advance for part of that kit, uh, just because it helped guys along. Plus, I had I got some specialized um, uh, toroid cores that I wanted to be sure were wound just right and for the low pass filter, and uh, which is an important part to make sure that everything is all just right. But winding all those things over time, I think is. Uh, uh, my one hand is numb. My one finger set of fingers are numb from playing guitar, and the other one is numb from holding the uh, the toroids and doing all the mounting there. I mean, between the two, I'm sometimes I feel a little bit uh, unable to to have lost out in life or something. But anyways, you get over it. Um, uh, how about winding? Oh, oh, Bruce, you have a comment. Yeah. Good evening, George. Um, how's my audio? It's been a while since I've been on. Yeah, it sounds pretty good. A little bit of an echo, but it gives you some depth. <laughs> yeah, the echo is because we've been uh, rebuilding the entire upstairs of the uh, the home here, and uh, the room is still very empty, so there's a lot of reverb. But I put together a desk, and I've got a uh, got a laptop sitting here, and I, I've really been meaning to join in with you guys on this excellent project, but I'm glad I could make it tonight. No, I just thought I'd jump in at this point while we're talking about uh, toroid winding and mention something that, that has happened to me as, as I first started uh, building kits years ago, and it still caught me every once in a while. In addition to the, the, the two cardinal sins as far as uh, um, the winding of the toroids and making sure that you get the correct number of counts, the biggest I issue is either one too many turns on the toroid or not having stripped the leads enough to have a good electrical connection on the board. And I believe uh, uh, Mike, WAABXN, came in there on the chat channel and mentioned uh, don't try to uh, strip them after the toroid's in the board. But even with um, wire that strips very well uh, with, the solder, with the soldering iron, I still tend to go back to my old technique of using a, uh, a Bic lighter. Uh, to strip the uh, the insulation off, and then I, I just drag it through a, uh, a folded piece of fine uh, sandpaper myself, and then tin the leads. But um, one thing that I wanted to mention was that look at the layout on the PC board, and where it expects to find the wires come off the ends of the toroid and use that as your guide for winding as far as whether you want to go clockwise or counterclockwise. And if you just take the core and put it over the outline on the board or where the two holes are, you'll see the ends where you want the wires to come off. Because if you wind it in the opposite direction, it'll still work, but it'll fit kind of funky diagonally on the board, and that may not appeal to your sensibilities at all, or it may make it hard depending on the particular project where it may crowd other components nearby. So I would just offer that as a tip to look at the PC board layout and see where it expects the wires to come off of each end of the toroid and wind accordingly. So I just wanted to add that, George, and uh, thanks very much. It's good to be back with you this evening. Yeah, Bruce, it's really nice to have you with us, too. Man, you've been a con good contributor over the uh, 
over the uh, years with us, and uh, I know that you had some stuff going on. It's nice to hear about the new the new digs you've got. I've got something like that going myself, so it's kind of fun planning and and putting uh, in my case putting my lab together, my my new radio shack, um, and the lab benches and so on. Um, what I'm doing in the what I what I forgot to do since last time, since the last episode, I was going to put some notes together relative to winding toroids, and some real good pictures and so on. I'm, and I'll get there. Um, if uh, if you wanted to take a look at something along the way, take a look at uh, uh, Diz's uh, kits and parts website, and you would see. Uh, he has a nice sequence of photos that show him winding toroids, and I think I'll just uh, reference that from our webpage. There's also a couple of good videos, you know, YouTube videos that, that illustrate the uh, the point you're talking about here. And uh, you can get your uh, your your uh, turns count uh, uh, just right with, with little worry along the way, as, as Bruce was saying. Um, another point about toroids, and we'll maybe leave the topic, um, a discussion that we ended up with in, in the, uh, the last episode's after party was that um, how, to, how to affix, how to hold solid the toroid to the printed circuit board. Bruce's comment about left-handed winding and right-handed winding, of course, is, is very good as far as this kit is concerned. And you would see that... Um, that it, it that it can help, um, and um, actually the oh, where was I going with this? The how to hold solid the toroid. Some guys were saying, well, maybe I should take RTV, not, um, but still otherwise put some kind of hot glue or uh, Q dope. One number one, there was a thought to maybe trying to keep the the windings solid along the toroid perimeter um, such that they don't shift in or out, you know, they don't get compressed or expanded. And secondly, how to keep the toroid from wiggling on the board if you have a, a vibration case, uh, a, a situation of having a vibrating uh, um, mounting of your circuit board. Uh, like if, if your project is going to be on a motorcycle or if it's in motion a lot, like in your go bag, yeah, there's some thought to how you would glue it down, essentially. Should it be laying down on the board? Should it be standing up? Um, has anybody had, uh, Joe, I know you have had experience and thoughts in it, but I thought I'd toss it open first here to see if others have comments about about that. Uh, if you were in the after party last time or just have your own experience with keeping uh, toroid windings and the toroid itself stable on a circuit board. Um, anybody have that kind of experience here? Okay, Joe, what are your uh, thoughts on that? <laughs> oh, I have thoughts on everything. Yeah, um, I see uh, Mike, uh, Mike pitched in and he said um, really the only thing that is, uh, I think it was Mike, you know, on the uh, chat window, the only thing that's really critical in there that you might want to secure down is the VFO uh, toroid. Be sure that it doesn't change in frequency. I've generally found that um, with most kits, um, with the thing laying down on the board and not standing up, um, 
the if you uh, pull the leads tight and solder it well, uh, it's usually stable enough to um, to not require additional uh, hold down material. In fact, um, there's been some discussion on the Elecraft lists about whether or not to secure the torch to the board with glue or hot wax or whatever, and um, they don't recommend it. Um, and knowing the quality of the uh, the people at uh, Elecraft and the quality of their designs, um, if the board is well designed, as this SW30 Plus board is, um, it's not really necessary. Um, things, uh, some of the Elecraft kits have bounced around in people's trucks and uh, motorcycles and bikes and backpacks for uh, hundreds of uh, outings, and they've not had any trouble. But uh, makes you feel good, uh, go ahead and do it. The one uh, proviso is um, if you do have to tweak the turns to uh, to pull the thing on frequency, you can't once you've secured it. And also, if you ever want to replace it, that can be a bear to take it off. Oh, you got that right for sure. Um, I've, used, uh, I've used a hot glue before. And it held it nice and tight uh, when I did have a, uh, we made a, a field strength meter one time, Joe. We did that kit for uh, Atlantic kind. I think it was called the Sniffer, the RF Sniffer. And it had a toroid there that was resonated with a polyvericon cap. Uh, some of you here listening would remember that project. And um, in that case, I laid it down on the circuit board and affixed it with some hot glue or something. Um, but uh, that's a rare condition. I think, uh, Joe, what you said is probably most often, if you just kind of snug up the wires, and uh, the wires itself will keep it tight, and you won't have to worry too much about it. If it gets too much vibration opportunity, you're probably going to have to take more extreme efforts than, than that. The risk of adding stuff to the toroid that is either going to impede later um, adjustment, movement, um, removal, replacement, um, or even it might affect its magnetic or physical properties in some fashion is probably not worth the effort. Um, wanted to mention just one last thing. George. Um, oh, sure. George, one, uh, one thing here. Oh, sure. Um, you're hitting the mic a little hard, so you're kind of splattering. So you might want to back off a little bit. Oh, yeah, the right. guys, the guys down three KC are complaining. <laughs> okay, good. I tend to just kind of lean forward and, and talk in that manner. Okay, um, Joe, we had. Well, first of all, before we leave toroids, I think this is such a popular and again a, a perennial topic of discussion. Has anybody else um, any questions? relative to toroids winding for this project or another one? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Was there anybody there? I wasn't looking at the screen. Okay, Dave, go ahead, please. Uh, just aside, I, I don't like to wind toroids, and so... On a project like this, the first thing I do is go and look and see where I can go buy store-bought toroids to use. And there's two of them on this design, the 0.68 microfarads and the output filter. So I just bought them from Mauser and didn't have to wind those two. Bought toroids or 
bought toroids or you bought uh, like solenoidal wound uh, RFCs? Yeah, just solenoidal wound RFCs. They seem to work fine. I wouldn't do that, uh, you know, for stuff in the VFO and whatnot. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Um, I've never thought of uh, thought of that, but I suspect uh, that it could be available in certain instances for common um, common uses, common inductances, and so on. Okay. With nothing else heard along the way, why don't we dive into today's uh, today's the meat of today's sec. Uh, uh, topic and of course that's the keen and the transmit mixer if you note on the uh, the whiteboard that uh, we have the block diagram with the circle the yellowed circle pointing to the area of the circuit that we're going to be talking about and it's all based around there the SA612 the popular Gilbert mixer uh, Gilbert cell mixer that uh, that we often use in the in the homebrewing circles, takes in a uh, uh, takes in a, a, a VFO and it mixes it or combines it with a another frequency, in this case our crystal at 7.68 megahertz, in order to produce the output, which is the direct RF output of 10.1 megahertz uh, um, that ultimately gets transmitted, and of course the VFO. The variability around that 2.4 megahertz oscillator, uh, the VFO, uh, when put through that mixer, gives us the variable frequency, which, when set up properly, goes from 10.1, you know, 10.100 megahertz up to 10.135. There's 35 kilohertz worth of uh, um, variability in in the the VFO, and that's what allows us to tune. Um, Joe, what I did was I, um, let's see, I started off with a keying circuit. So if you're following along on the whiteboard, I might ask Mike. Um, this, you know, I mentioned here that Mike WA8BXN was a very integral part of this whole adventure here with our rendition of the um, SW101, um, of the Elmer 101 series here for this project. And um, what we've done is utilized uh, graciously from Mike a lot of his uh, description and such that now constitutes the manual, and especially some of your findings during your assembly part of it, uh, Mike. And I applaud your your uh, contributions to the list as you've been going through step by step and putting your own observations in um, some of your the trials and tribulations that you've experienced, but. Um, Mike, if I haven't, if I hope I have given you enough time here, let's. Uh, can you overview the keying circuit and maybe some of your uh, observations on this simpler part of the overall design? Well, good evening, everyone. First, let me see. Do I have uh, decent audio? Yes, you do. Okay, I'm out camping and in via the cell network. Uh, the keying circuit uh, is a uh, PNP transistor that uh, when we ground the key, allows a 12-volt uh, DC to pass through it uh, to supply power to the transmit mixer and other low-level stages. Uh, 
transistor is kind of upside down from the way you normally uh, expect transistors to work. But if you think about uh, the biasing on transistors, uh, it does follow all the the right rules again, uh, being a PNP transistor. Uh, go ahead. Okay, fine business. The uh, the uh, that transistor, if you're if you're following along on the whiteboard, there's a schematic fragment that that we indicated there again, circled encircled by a, a yellow uh, line, and the Keen transistor is uh, Q3 in the upper right corner of that. And you would see what Mike was referring to it being kind of upside down from what we normally see as a representation. When the key is brought down to zero volts, that um, essentially biases the PN junction from the emitter to the base um, such that it turns on the transistor and it conducts from the emitter to the, um, the collector in this case. The current, uh, the current flows in that particular manner and um, ultimately supplying the power, as uh, Mike said, to, in this case, the, uh, the TX mixer, the transmit mixer, and, and some other uh, portions of the circuit. Um, this is a, a common way, Joe, of, uh, of keying some of our simpler circuits and uh, direct conversion projects and, and so on. Any observations on the keying? It's relatively straightforward. We just wanted to touch base with it along the way. But uh, it is essential during this this stage of the of the design um, to enable us to turn the trans uh, to turn the, uh, the local oscillator and then the mixer on and off uh, by the key uh, contacts on on the printed circuit board uh, J3. Any other observations here, Joe? No, not really. Um, it's a fairly simple keying circuit uh, here. In uh, some more sophisticated rigs, there'd be some um, RC um, circuits attached to give you a smoother turn on and turn off, but um, of the RF, so you didn't generate key clicks. But uh, with the component values that Dave's picked here, it's a soft enough turn on and turn off that uh, doesn't generate clicks. Very simple, a very elegant way to key the darn thing. And uh, George mentioned uh, the key turning it on. Um, you know, in, in normal use, you'd use a key. Um, if you look in Mike's directions in, um, in checking out the, uh, the keying on uh, transmit oscillator, transmit the mixer, uh, you actually put a jumper across a couple pins on the, um, uh, on the board where the key would normally go um, to take the place of the key. And then it's replaced with a leads to a jack when you finally assemble it in a box. Yep. Um, does anybody have any comments or questions about the, the cure? Um, we can move on if, uh, if there are none, but we wanted to give this opportunity here. Any questions come to mind? Um, go ahead. Okay, I really hope that uh, you guys are going to help us in this because it's your uh, it's your observations and, and uh, that, that are really going really to help to drive, to drive others, others as we're going along the way. Are you able to hear uh, me okay? Yeah, who's yeah, there? there? Hi, this is uh, Wayne, W6AHH, and uh, I, I posted on the list, but um, 
I'm more of a know a lot about electronics, but ham sort of beginner. And so, would this be considered break-in QSK? And if so, why? For the keyer. Uh, yeah, good yeah, point. Good nice point. to have you with us, Wayne. And by the way, yeah, uh, I think you've got Vox turned on for your uh, your Teamspeak client. If you could. Uh, Go under your tools and options, and then for the microphone, select PTT. That would help because when I'm when anybody is speaking, it, it kind of keys up on your side and you get a lot of echo and feedback. So, um, yeah, uh, QSK is is pretty simply that. There's no delay. There's immediate uh, um, transmit and receive switching back and forth to allow you to hear in between the dits and the das that you are keying with. Um, as Mike commented uh, in the text chat window, uh, there's not much delay in the switching, and the TR switch is indeed electronic. It's that uh, that transistor Q uh, uh, Q3. So yeah, that's that's about it. And if you connect a keyer up to this key and input, uh, and you crank the keyer speed up to maybe 15 or 20 words per minute. Um, you would indeed hear in between, which is a very nice, very nice capability in, when, when operating uh, to be able to hear somebody hear trying to interrupt you. All right, thanks. Yeah, Mike uh, adds that C110, um, C110, C110, which is the 3.3 uh, the microfarad capacitor on the switched uh, DC bus. That actually applies power to the mixer and others. Um, we'll delay it a little bit, but not too noticeably at all. Yeah, I think it's it's very little delay, George. I've I've built several of the SW series over the years, and I've never had a problem, you know, hearing somebody breaking in on me while I've been calling or or something like that. It's not like a uh, a transceiver that utilizes an electromechanical relay or something like that to go from transmit to receive. When you get down into the uh, the actual TR switching, you'll see that it's all electronic, you know, those who are building it. And it's very quick turnaround time. I don't know that I've ever actually measured it or know anybody who has in terms of the number of milliseconds, but it's a, it's a very smooth operation. Yep, indeed it is. And uh, for those uh, those industrious uh, students who want, uh, want to do some after hours homework or whatever, putting um, the key line, um, actually not the key line, but the switched uh, bus that the key switches on and off, put that onto a scope, maybe with a, using a keyer to feed this so you can get repetitive dits or das. Um, looking at the, uh, the rise time and fall time of that, um, of that keyed bus, uh, the voltage there going up and down, would be an indicator of uh, uh, some of the limitations that would be that would be encountered as far as uh, the switching delay, but virtually virtually nothing in this case. Yeah, but people should keep in mind that if they are intrigued and want to use their oscilloscope to actually uh, look at that and measure that, keep in mind that the charge on uh, that the charge on C110 there uh, is going to bleed off somewhat faster once the uh, the buffer and driver stages are in are in place and they're they're pulling from that line as well. So you won't get an accurate indication with only the TX mixer in line, but once we uh, we build along, you'll see that it uh, it is quite a, a, a peppy switchover. Yeah, great points. 
Okay, Joe, let's uh, let's get into the the heart of the heart of the project, uh, which in this case is the mixing. I mentioned uh, in passing just a moment ago that uh, I uh, I forgot if I was referring to the mixer or the keying, but is common for direct conversion uh, transceiver projects that we've uh, that we do these days an awful lot of, but. This is not a trans. This is not a direct conversion uh, transceiver. It is a super hat, um, and it's a super hat that uses several stages of the mixer, which is the SA612. And uh, um, what I did is I found a really good reference. Um, I cut back on a lot of the technical details, and I tried to update all the numbers properly. I hope I got all the, the mixing numbers right. Um, but in essence. Uh, what I'd like to do is just go through, call it Mixing 101, Joe. And uh, we've talked about this in prior episodes of Chat with the Designers. And you can go to our homepage and look down, scan down the names of the uh, the titles of our previous episodes in order to find, um, I think it's uh, Frequency, uh, I forgot what the name might be, but we've talked about this topic in, in greater detail. But just in passing for now, Joe, you know, the... Uh, Taking two signals in, mixing them, and coming up with the sum and the difference. Uh, how does all that work? Well, it works quite well, actually. Yeah, um, it is a super het uh, receiver in this rig. So uh, it uses uh, an intermediate frequency, intermediate between the uh, RF of uh, approximately 10.1 megahertz and audio. Um, the um, the IF here happens to be seven about 7.68 megahertz um, based on the uh, crystals that were chosen quartz crystals which um, give a really nice uh, crystal filter that's a couple hundred hertz perhaps 500 hertz wide um, and in order in the receiver to um, to get the um, uh, the 7.68 megahertz uh, IF um, the incoming RF at 10.1 megahertz is mixed with the VFO, the variable frequency oscillator, and uh, the sum of the um, or the difference between the 10.1 megahertz and the VFO produce the 7.68 megahertz um, signal, which goes into the receiver. It's not the topic tonight, but uh, mentioning it for uh, for completeness sake. On the other hand, when you go to the transmitter, um, there's another 7.68 megahertz um, crystal oscillator that um, is mixed with the uh, VFO and there the sum of the crystal oscillator frequency and the VFO comes out at 10.1 megahertz so um, you you get the right um, you get the right output frequency that way you use the same VFO um, for both you don't you don't need separate oscillators it automatically does it and if you uh, look at the block diagram, you can see on the receiver side, the uh, crystal on the product detector has a capacitor in series with it. What that does is it pulls the oscillating frequency of that crystal oscillator just a tad high. And if you look at the crystal on the transmit mixer, there's an inductor in series with the crystal that pulls it just a little bit low. And what this does is to make sure that you're not transmitting and receiving on exactly the right frequency. There's about an 800 hertz offset between the two frequencies. So that if you're transmitting at um, 
10.1 uh, megahertz. Um, you you want to have the receiver tuned 10.1 plus 800 hertz higher. This offset is what gives you the proper audio tone um, to hear the signal you're uh, you're trying to receive. So this very elegantly does that. And um, some have found that the offset might not be exactly right, so you can uh, play a little bit. If if that comes to be the case, you can play play a little bit with some of the the uh, capacitors in the um, either the, the transmit or the receive uh, oscillators to tweak the offset just a just a tad to get it uh, dead nuts on the uh, 800 hertz offsets that you want. And how about the the aspect of super heterodyne versus heterodyne, Joe? Can you just make a side uh, side comment on that? Most certainly. Yeah, the the direct conversion receivers um, have a mixer um, again offset from the transmit frequency or for the, from the receive frequency, so that you get a proper tone. The problem is, um, and I should have pointed this out, uh, with a direct conversion. You get not only the sum and difference, you get uh, you you hear signals on either side of the VFO that um, tunes the receiver, um, so that you get you know you get twice the bandwidth, and you can't get rid of the other sideband. With a super heterodyne, um, we have a narrow crystal filter, which receives in this case um, I got to think about it. I think it's the the um, the lower sideband. Um, only one side of the uh, the beat frequency, so that you get what's called single single signal reception. You only hear one side of the uh, the beat no the beat note on one side of the oscillator, rather than hearing it on both sides. So uh, it makes the uh, well, it makes the receiver twice as selective, and uh, much easier to listen to uh, in a crowded band when there are a lot of other signals around. Uh, it um, the selectivity removes the uh, signals from the other sideband so that they don't uh, don't interfere with what you're trying to listen to. Anybody have any comments on that uh, or any questions actually? Um, a lot of this of course is uh, basic theory for radios and we hear the terms all the time. It's It's kind of best illustrated in small projects like this that we can actually monitor the um, the frequencies through the chain and, and and see them in action, as it were. Plus, we've included some spectrum um, pictures uh, Mike, from Mike's uh, spectrum analyzer that illustrate this, and you can actually see in the uh, in the one diagram that's in the mixer circuit portion. Uh, what we did is we put the um, a representation, schematic representation for a balanced mixer, um, and uh, we see the input signal going in from the left, and the local signal, which is in, this, in our case, it's the uh, the crystal. Uh, well, it could be either one, yeah, actually, but nonetheless, those two signals get mixed or multiplied. Well, it's a multiplier, but they get mixed, and it's the additive and the subtractive that comes out of the output signal. And that's represented in the diagram, the spectrum graphical representation to the right of that, where we see the local oscillator in the center, and there's to just the left of it is a, um, um, is a signal 
that's shown in a dotted arrow that says the local oscillator minus that, uh, in this case, the IF frequency, or just uh, the, the two different the subtraction of the two different frequencies, and the uh, lesser signal to the right of the LO, which is labeled RF, is the local oscillator plus the um, uh, plus the second frequency. And that's the one that we're actually going to be focusing on as we take the um, take it further down downstream and ultimately amplify it and, and uh, get it uh, um, get it uh, transmitted, send it up the antenna. But this these two these two diagrams here kind of represent the basis for um, a lot of what we do in radio world as far as um, taking a signal and mixing it or combining it with another in order to get to a higher or lower uh, signal that we would use either to transmit or on the receive side in order to uh, uh, do some filtering, as, as Joe explained. Yeah, Bruce, go ahead. Yeah, you know, Mike's, uh, Mike's chart here really, really helps drive home a point for those who may be interested um, or, or want to make the connection between what we're doing here with a very simple RF circuit, relatively speaking, and let's say somebody wants to put a, uh, a new repeater, uh, VHF or UHF, at an uh, existing transmitter site where there may be a TV station on top of a mountain or something like that. And uh, one of the things that has to be done is a frequency survey. And this mixing uh, spectrum really drives home the point that uh, there are a huge number of uh, mixing products that are generated. So when they do a, uh, a frequency analysis to see whether or not there are going to be any problems to other services and so forth, that there's a lot of things that we may not necessarily consider immediately when uh, you put one transmitter in close proximity to another transmitter and the fact that those signals can mix together in just something as simple as a, a rusty bolt on the tower creates a diode connection and suddenly you've got these uh, spurious signals being generated. Um, the whole idea of frequency mixing, um, there's, there's a whole plethora of, uh, of other parts of our hobby that come into play here. Um, I've seen cases where people have come and they've said, well, geez, why am I hearing the, uh, the output of this repeater on that repeater? And, and ultimately it was traced to literally a rusty bolt on, on that guy's tower where those two repeaters mixed together and created a, um, a mixing product that wasn't expected. So uh, mixing is a fascinating subset of our hobby all in and of itself. And Mike's done a great job of showing how just the simplest of uh, devices that we have here create all these, uh, these multiples. So uh, I really want to congratulate him on bringing this forward. Oh, you bet. And that's a great, great uh, relation to other aspects of the hobby, as you say. And I think a, another interesting um, thing that maybe we all have experienced, um, or or maybe it's just me and my, my I'm, I have a, I have a, a, a TS-2000 here as one of my main rigs on the bench. And while I'm listening to AM, um, AM QSOs and working AM QSOs um, on the receive when I'm hearing sometimes when somebody else is transmitting um, I'm hearing strange um, other signals in there like a CW conversation but it only comes on 
when that other station is, is transmitting. Now maybe it also would happen with lower sideband or upper sideband um, as well, or and, and other modes. But um, Joe, I'm wondering if that might be attributed to um, either the condition that Mike was uh, uh, outlining or pointing out of unwanted mixing somewhere along the way, or even a poor design, even in a commercial rig, that at certain frequencies, um, the mixing elements that, of, of, that are happening inside the radio, um, different frequencies are combining and in ways such that when it is tuned to certain frequencies, you will hear, in addition to the main signal you are intending to receive, you will also hear other frequencies um, in, in, in there as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that can certainly happen. Um, what often happens is if there's a, um, if there's a strong um, transmitted signal or two strong transmitted signals, um, they can drive some of the early stages in a receiver to be nonlinear and uh, act as a mixer and generate these uh, some of different products um, as you can see on the, uh, uh, in the same manner you see on the uh, spectral uh, plot here. Uh, yeah, it can happen. Um, quite often happens in uh, field day when uh, there are multiple, uh, multiple radios on the air at the same time in close proximity and uh, somebody on another band can uh, cause spurious products mixing with the signals you want just because uh, you know you're receiving volts of signal as opposed to uh, microvolts of signal and uh, that can uh, cause the mixing. Um, um, to, to toot the Ellicraft's horn a little bit um, their designs are very very robust and uh, they tend to be less subject to uh, uh, this uh, intermodulation, this uh, mixing from uh, strong nearby signals than uh, many of the other rigs. And, um, you know, modern rigs are generally te tend to be designed to uh, withstand strong signals and not produce all those spurious products that uh, cause it difficult to receive. Yeah, Bruce. Yeah, I just, you know, Joe's, Joe's comment there uh, kind of dovetailed with what I was saying, not to get too far afield here, but we had a local situation where an amateur not that far from me, uh, closer to downtown, said, you know, well, why am I hearing the packet radio um, uh, node on the, uh, on the, uh, the local FM repeater? And, and the local FM repeater was on 146.76. And the local packet node was on 145.75, and we happened to have a local AM station half a mile from this gentleman's house that was in 1.01 megahertz, 1010, on the AM dial. And they mixed to create, uh, together to create the uh, some frequency form that, that uh, he was hearing. And, uh, you know, we were able to make a, a high-pass filter for him, so that uh, the 1010 wasn't interfering. I actually often used that uh, 1010 local signal for my local marker generator. I would hear it on 1010, 2020, 30, 30, 40, 40, 50, 50, all the way up through uh, 30 meters. So uh, it's just one of those real life things that can have you scratching your head until you stop and think about what may actually be going on. But very good stuff. Now it's very bad stuff if you've got it happening and you can't find out what's, what's causing it actually. Um, and, uh, it's, it's actually a fascinating, and we'll leave this topic because it's, it's kind of getting too far afield, but 
it's actually a fascinating topic of when you have a, <clears throat> when you have a complex transceiver, um, the frequency, I don't know what you'd call it, uh, the, the frequency analysis of, or the analysis of all the frequencies inside the rig and how they might be interacting with each other and what you can do to minimize that so as to reduce the birdies and the, and the other signals that we're talking about here. Um, if you just something that comes to mind, oh, in one of the handbooks, most more one of the more recent handbooks, a cover, um, a cover project on the cover of the article of the of the handbook was um, a gentleman um, AG6L. I forgot who it was, but he actually designed a um, a transceiver from scratch and and full blown capabilities and so on that he went through such a, an analysis in order to try to find and reduce all of such instances of intermodulation and un, unwanted effects. It's a fascinating topic uh, that we don't have to worry about in quite as much detail in, in the, our lower-ended uh, projects here in the homebrewing world, but it's certainly something that anybody who's putting together uh, larger designs does have to think about. Um, okay, let's, let's move away from all this theory all this theory kind of stuff. And Mike, I'm going to, yeah, hopefully, maybe if you're out camping and maybe you've still got it fresh on your mind or if you're following along, but um, Mike, let's get back to practicality and putting this uh, these circuits together. You you outlined a, a pretty interesting sequence of events that that I um, that I recounted and, and put into the manual as well and I put here on the webpage that was kind of a, your trials and tribulations of getting some of the uh, components working, not necessarily the, uh, the key in transistor, but some of the other observations and, and problems that you worked through and you started sliding down a, a slippery slope or uh, I, I like some of your terminology there, but ultimately you came out on top, of course, but maybe you could recount for us some of your building experience here in the, uh, uh, the U5 mixing uh, stage. Well, it was fun. It was very much fun. Almost a lot more fun than put the components in and they work. Um, and I uh, had a couple different computers going while I was uh, working on this. One was looking at the manual uh, uh, that was posted there and following the instructions that were there, exactly what was said, uh, to be able to find any more mistakes that uh, I had made or things that... Uh, changed a little bit uh, with the exact components that were supplied in the kit. And uh, when I got to testing, I'm not going to read through the uh, description that is there, uh, I just uh, started making some notes on uh, uh, one of the windows on the computer of the results that I was getting. And uh, there they are, uh, for better or for worse. I was very surprised to... Uh, have a uh, bad uh, 602 mixer IC, but uh, ultimately that's what it turned out to be. I hope no one else runs into that problem. It's extremely rare, and um, uh, had to kind of track things down. And then the keyer transistor, uh, I'm not sure what happened to it in my testing uh, for the stage. Initially, it seemed to be working, and uh, I don't know. Maybe I had a clip lead uh go where it shouldn't go, uh, but uh, finally uh, kind of analyzed the circuit and uh, 
tried to figure out what could be causing the problem, was able to track it down. And uh, that's the part of the fun uh, of, of building these kits. Uh, it, it's fun, of course, if you can solve the problem. It's not so much fun while you're trying to solve the problem and uh, if you can't get it solved. But uh, uh, this is uh, part of the learning experience, I think, uh, of this uh, little radio. There are just so many aspects of the theory and practice they get put together here that it's uh, a great, uh, great tool to be looking at. Oh, you betcha. And I think one of the, the nicest parts about the this Elmer 101 series and this particularly this design of uh, Dave's design of the SW30 is that it's a proven design. It works. It's been repeatedly um, built, uh, rely, uh, successfully built uh, repeatedly over time. And uh, so the confidence is there in the design. So if something's not working, it's likely a builder error, such as a component in wrong or in the wrong spot, a, um, a solder error, um, um, a solder splash, a short, or something that's not soldered, a cold solder joint, uh, connecting your probe or wire to something that you think is what you should be, but it's not that. And, um, to kind of go through it mentally and ask all of the obvious questions. When all else fails, I mean, a, a bad component is always a possibility, either from the manufacturer, from the supplier, from, um, from your own handling, perhaps. <clears throat> and, uh, and it's something to watch out for. Mike, I'm wondering, what are some of the the, the practices that you follow, I mean, as you're, you, you've been putting kits together and designing um, um, adaptations of, of designs for many years, and uh, the outline and the process that you followed here in this thing is pretty evident uh, from your descriptions of it and on the list, but what, what could you kind of summarize as, uh, you know, like, what are the things to look for and you know, don't get uh, don't get discouraged because there is an answer, and sometimes it's staring you right in the face. Well, uh, there's a number of different uh, techniques, and I tried in my uh, uh, write up there to uh, indicate them. Uh, measuring voltages, uh, kind of starting back at the beginning, what is working, what's not working. Uh, sometimes it's good to just walk away from the project for a little while and uh, you know, be sort of mulling it over in your mind but not actively working on it and coming back fresh. Uh, maybe you'll spot some things. Uh, I very, very, very carefully inspected all of my soldering, uh, expecting that, uh, okay, maybe there's a little uh, whisker here or there that may have been the problem. Uh, it... Uh, it just takes some time and, uh, I guess, an attitude that, yes, I'm going to find the problem. may take a while, uh, but I will be able to find it. Uh, understanding uh, the circuitry a little bit, what it's trying to do, certainly helps. So that when you're starting to get some voltages that uh, aren't in the right range, uh, it kind of gives you some clues. Uh, another thing is uh, try to understand the, the test equipment that you're working could it with could it be the problem uh, and I had a little bit of a problem with that uh, 
that I uh, I forget if it well, I've got a receiver that's a little bit flaky for one thing uh, on some frequencies and uh, uh, getting uh, having a good oscilloscope kind of helps if you've got got test equipment but you got to know what its limitations are as well so uh, uh, yeah I suppose a, a good thing if you uh, aren't able to find a problem yourself if you can be kind of working with someone else that uh, can yeah they don't necessarily have to understand exactly what you're working with but maybe they can ask some questions did you try this did you try that uh, might help as well Boy, that's great advice. <laughs> I chuckled when you say, even knowing your test equipment, uh, a, a very short side story is uh, Joe and I were, oh gosh, we worked together on so many projects and there was this, we were battling something with the DDS-60, um, a DDS uh, design and trying to determine one thing or another. And uh, we were looking at it, looking at it, looking at it, and then all of a sudden, um, either you said it, Joe, or I looked down and noticed that I was on the times one probe setting of the scope probe instead of the times 10, the 10x uh, setting, and that was affecting the circuit, and such that switching it over to 10x resolved the problem. So uh, it made uh, it made the problem quote unquote go away because it was properly being shown then on a scope without the loading that was occurring when the scope probe was in the times one uh, setting. But Joe, um, the, uh, the, uh, you've, you've had years of troubleshooting experience and uh, I'm wondering if you can kind of add to what Mike said with some specific guidance to builders here of the SW30, you know, hoping to get a lot of guys building it. What we don't want to have is, is um, somebody gets stuck building the circuit or not even give it a try for fear of not uh, of not getting it put together right? I mean, the whole effort, the whole the whole reason for the project is to get uh, to get you building up these uh, these circuits. So, what what could you kind of give us as icing on the cake that Mike uh, was baking? Yeah, Mike has some excellent advice there. Taking a fresh look at things uh, often helps. Uh, getting another's viewpoint on what's going on. Um, and the basis of troubleshooting is, as he outlined, um, it's a binary process. You divide, uh, you find out what works or what is working as expected and what's not working as expected. And uh, then uh, try to narrow down and uh, focus on what's not working, what, because, what might be causing that. Um, Working with another person is good to get other viewpoints. What also helps is if you have a buddy who uh, might be building the same thing, who uh, uh, has had some success with it, um, he might be able to make some measurements, look at some things, and um, uh, tell you what he sees, what works with his or doesn't work with his, so that you get a benefit of that. Um, and you can use the chat with the designers list for that as well. If you, have, if you run into a roadblock, if you have something that doesn't look quite right, uh, you don't understand what's, what's happening, or um, something doesn't work the way it's supposed to, uh, drop a note on the chat with the designers list and use uh, what we like to think of as the collective knowledge of the list 
to um, try to assist. Uh, after all, that's what we're here for. We're here to um, help you guys um, achieve success with this uh, this uh, project. And um, there's lots of guys out there who uh, would be willing to help you to uh, give a little advice to help you over some rough spots and uh, maybe recommend a few things to try to um, to um, uh, see if they could help you. Um, and that's my advice. Oh, absolutely. Plus, you want to mention, um, we ought to mention here, um, again, we did last time and the time before that, but the the troubleshooting schematic that's located at the bottom of, the, of, our, of our whiteboard. And that is uh, the schematic that's shown there um, with all the different voltage symbols on it in squares, uh, you know, in a rectangle. Um, some are in uh, circles, which indicate AC measurements um, versus the DC measurements of the, of the square uh, uh, of the rectangles. I mean, even just starting with your DVM and measuring the DC voltages throughout the circuit will will show gross problems. Uh, voltages that are, for example, 7.4 and you're reading 7.35, that's not a problem, probably. Uh, but if you're reading instead of 7.4, you're reading like 2 or certainly 0. <clears throat> That's uh, that's an indication that something is is not right. So you want to just try to follow that signal back through and find out where VR in this case. I'm looking at the uh, collector of Q2. We were having a side discussion on, in the chat window about VR and what it is and why it is. And if you're not getting the 7.4 or so voltage there, you want to find out where VR is generated in the circuit. And you would see that it's uh, it's generated at the top of uh, U3 in the center, upper center portion of the schematic. <clears throat> and it comes from, it's derived from the 8-volt uh, um, uh, bus or the regulator, 8-volt regulator. And so if you don't have a 7.3, 7.4 there for VR, see if you've got the 8 volts, which is kind of like in front of that. If you don't have 8 volts there, find out where 8 volts is generated. And in this case here, you would look to the left center of the schematic, and you would see that it's generated by U2, a three-terminal regulator, um, 78LO8. And uh, if it's not generating the 8 volts output, there's, there's only a couple of reasons why that could be the case. Either there's a short on its output that takes it to zero, or perhaps that there is no voltage input to U2. So you would check the input of um, that uh, IC, that's a three-terminal TO92 package, and you would see it's uh, that you should have V plus, or supply voltage, on the input there. If you do have it there, and you don't, and you still don't have the output on uh, of 8 volts, what should you do? Well, maybe U2 is inserted backwards. Maybe it's not soldered in properly. Maybe there's a short on one of its three terminals to ground where it shouldn't be grounded. I mean, these are all different areas where um, um, the uh, you know troubleshooting techniques could be actively employed. It gets a little trickier, but not too much, when we're talking about AC voltages. The AC voltages are shown in the circles or the ovals, and you can do that with, um, you can um, 
measure that with your DVM as well with uh, the addition of a diode probe um, on the um, on, along with your DVM and you, in the in the DC measurement position and the diode detector there a resistor a capacitor and a diode uh, Mike has an excellent uh, simple circuit for that and uh, we have that in the manual as well um, using that diode probe you're able to see if the the uh, RMS voltage is uh, is present although in this case here those signals are shown in circles as peak to peak but we all know what peak to peak voltage is versus the RMS voltage and if you don't you could look it up it's a simple mathematic uh, relationship and um, so you can measure that and see where you have the proper signals in the, in the areas of the circuit. And of course, you would get you would be able to see the AC measurements, of course, when uh, when the circuit is turned on, of course, and when things are oscillating. So there's all sorts of techniques that you can follow step by step in order to really see what you've got and uh, where things are working. We we're talking last time about the VFO not working in some cases, and again, a simple DVM with and without the RF probe on it, where you're able to actually verify everything um, is, is working fine. And as far as this mixing stage, all you need to do is to, uh, if you verify that there's an output signal, um, in this case it was shown as a 1 volt signal on pin 4 or 5 of U5, um, by putting a little wire antenna, if you will, just a little wire clip lead, if you will, on one of those uh, pins of the IC and loosely coupling it to a, a receiver you'd be able in your shack you'd be able to hear the frequencies um, that are being generated and know that the signal that you are measuring happens to be a 10.1 megahertz signal or so and that's about what you need at this stage all right um, any comments about uh, the mixing and troubleshooting of the circuits thus far. I wonder. Um, I wonder if uh, Pete, if uh, WB2QLL, if you're, if you're actually listening and following along here, you're a veteran uh, home brewer. Um, oftentimes of some of the bigger valve circuits, uh, tubes. But uh, nonetheless, the troubleshooting techniques are the same, irrespective of, of where you're, uh, you know, the, the vintage technology that you're using. Any observations about what you've seen here tonight, Pete? Uh, thanks for the uh, invitation. Uh, it's uh, correct as far as I know. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, I've used hot glue to uh, tie down to toroids, and I don't think that's terribly remarkable. Um, but uh, in, in in looking at the troubleshooting, that's uh, basically what I do. The, the 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 important thing that I stress, whether I'm doing uh, IC based troubleshooting like this or uh, tube type, is you have to be able to determine whether the circuit is working correctly or not. Uh, and of course, you have to divide the unit as you indicated correctly in terms of uh, sub circuits and sub component sub sub units of the complete device. Uh, but you have to be able to say, okay, here we have an oscillator. I have to be able to determine absolutely whether this oscillator is working or not working. I have to be able to determine whether the mixer is working, the amplifier is working. 
um, uh, have to be able to determine all of these things absolutely whether they're working or not. Uh, and by the way, I don't know why that uh, announcement made about you recording it all the time. I have the sound pack turned off here, and that thing still comes on with sound. I have to deal with that too. Anyway, that's 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 my my main observation here on on the subject of troubleshooting. You do need a minimum of test equipment that actually works and that you have faith in. Um, that's about it, uh, uh, George. Yeah, real fine, Pete. And you got to know how to use it. I think. Um the ubiquitous uh, DVM, um, there's probably settings in that DVM that you didn't even know about um, if you never had a chance to really explore it. Uh, take a look at the dial on some of your fancy DVMs and you'll see that it does much more than just measuring voltage and current. Um, and you might be surprised by some of the accessories that you might even have for your simple little DVMs from, uh, from Harbor Freight, just as an example. Okay, um, well, frankly, I have not looked forward um, to the next episode to see what uh, what steps we're going to be encountering, but um, um, but uh, it's coming up on, in two weeks from now, so I don't even know what date that is, but whatever two weeks from now is when we'll have the next episode. Um, between now and then, I'm really hoping, both Joe and I and some of us other regulars are hoping that, that you all are putting together your circuits. Uh, we put a lot of effort in, in putting these, these kits together in hopes of getting them into everybody's hands and getting you building. I, I've been hearing from many of you, actually, that, that it is progressing, and it's very encouraging, and I applaud your efforts. Um, if you haven't yet done it, give it a try. You might like it. I mean, you can have this thing sitting on the shelf for a long time, and and maybe get to it in the future. And But uh, doing it now, and when we've got a lot of people looking at it, and a lot of our friends on the lists are able to answer our questions, and I think uh, uh, strike while the iron is hot, as you say, um, and just uh, make sure you grab the right side of the iron. So, uh, Joe, if there's anything else that you wanted to add now, or maybe uh, make, maybe take us home. Yeah, first I have to find the push to talk switch. No, I think we've pretty much covered everything. I uh, I noted in the chat window that uh, one difference between working with uh, vacuum tube circuits and uh, with small signal semiconductor circuits is that uh, uh, with the vacuum tubes, you got to watch out for high voltages and hot devices. Generally with uh, small signal solid state stuff, you can poke around in there and not get zapped with high voltages and not get blisters on your fingers if you touch the devices. If you've got a uh, TO92 transistor, you grab it and you get a blister on your finger, you got something wrong. Um, that's extreme troubleshooting. Anyway, um, yeah, good session tonight. Um, we, we tried to um, cover the uh, um, broad topic of uh, the next stage of uh, the Elmer 101 project in the uh, SW30 which was the uh, keying circuit and the transmit mixer. Along the way, we discussed the, uh, the operating theory of it, um, why superheterodynes are important. Superheterodyne circuits are important for receivers. We talked about uh, frequency mixing um, and frequency offsets to uh, get proper CW operation. Described, um, although it's off topic for tonight, we described uh, the receiver 
uh, crystal filter, which we will uh, go into more depth in in the future, uh, its uh, theory of operation. And uh, we we provided some practical experience, practically from practically primarily from uh, Mike WABXN, who uh, has been a real champion of uh, getting into the nits and grits of building uh, building up his uh, his radio, and uh, uh, talking about some of the uh, uh, problems he's he's had as experienced as he is. Um, everyone runs into this; something doesn't work. You have to uh, go into troubleshooting mode and uh, try to figure out what's going on. So um, his experience is invaluable in describing the troubleshooting process and um, possibly helping others in um, doing their own troubleshooting, trying to figure out what's going on and to um, verifying the proper operation as we go through the, uh, the radio stage by stage. We will go on uh, next next uh, session as George mentioned with uh, the next section in the radio describing the operating theory as it applies to um, to this uh, project and perhaps a little beyond to give some general knowledge and uh, providing the, uh, the troubleshooting information and uh, proper operation verification that is so important uh, going along and, and uh, dividing things that do work from uh, what doesn't work and trying to figure out why. Thank you all for participating. Um, a special thanks to those who, uh, who give their own insights into uh, the process of building this and to, um, to doing troubleshooting and um, figuring out what is and isn't working, which is an important thing. And I do recommend to, um, to you all that uh, you get on the chat with the designers list <coughs> if you have questions, if you have problems, or if you have some observations that you think might uh, might help some others get their uh, radios working. Um, 73 for now. I can uh, smell my dinner uh, working, uh, dinner uh, cooking. So uh, I'm not going to hang around too much longer. 73 to all, and uh, see you next time. Okay, thank you, Joe, and thank you, everybody, from me as well. This is N2APB closing down. Chat with the designers, and we'll see you all next time. Bye-bye now. And I will be here if anybody wants to chat for just a little bit as well. Uh, I've got a couple of questions, George. Sure thing, Pat. Go ahead. Okay. And these might be more for the future because uh, there really wasn't a good place to ask them as you're going through. But one is uh, how you accomplished the offset between transmit and receive. I think I see it, but it would be kind of good to talk about that. Uh, the second one, and again, that's probably more for next time, is... Um, IF transformers have always been a mystery to me, and I see what we're doing is uh, like a one-to-one -one transformation, it looks like, but how you decided, uh, you know, uh, what were the reasons for the specific transformer. And then the other one that's probably got me most curious is the design of T4. Um, I am uh, just, uh, you know, transformers are one thing that have always been a little bit of black magic to me. Okay, is anybody still there? <laughs> Overload it. No, I'm here. I'm here. Can you hear me? I can now. Oh, maybe I pressed the wrong button. 
So were you saying that the Transformers, uh, for example, T2 and T3 were black magic? Well, just how the how they work isn't magic, but how they were chosen and what values were going in. In other words, uh, you know, there are there only one version of uh, of uh, IF transformers, or um, in other words, are they standard, or are there multiple ones, and how do you choose? Uh, there indeed are multiple ones. If you look up the part number, and again, I'm not sure if the part list has the numbers yet. But this is uh, called a 43IF123, I think. And uh, there's a whole, there's there's a range of them that are popular with us designers. Um, 122, 120, and so on. And um, um, they are, they are um, IF cans or IF transformers. Oftentimes they have, um, they are, they are resonant for certain frequencies, which is the primary determination of which uh, and how you want to use them. Um, many times they have uh, capacitors that are built into the can right across the coil. In this case here, maybe there are, maybe they're not, I, I don't know, but we add additional capacitors um, as shown there in the circuit diagram. But that's pretty much the, um, um, uh, the deal. These are transformers that are pre-made, slug-tuned coils, um, highly high Q, um, um, and you know slug-tuned adjustable, such that they are most effective over a range of frequencies. So if you looked up on Mauser, I can do this as for well, whenever I release the key. Um, if you looked up 43IF123, you would see the uh, the spec sheet for it, and it would indicate its usage and some of its specifications. Okay. Uh, and then the other one was the T4 where you've got the uh, the ferrite toroid rather than the powdered iron. And um, I'm assuming it's a broadband uh, transformer, but how do you determine how you're going to do it? And, and uh, the will you use that same one regardless of the frequency of the of the, um, you know, if you do it for 40, 30, or 20? Um, it is frequency dependent. And that's the primary um, selection criteria for toroid material. <clears throat> There's two basic categories. There's powdered, uh, powder iron, powdered iron uh, toroids, and there is ferrite. Um, one, of course, is, well, one is... Uh, um, much better in for use in power transformers and, um, that are wideband uh, in nature, such as L, perhaps L2 um, and T4. I'm guessing um, I don't have the, the schematic in front of me right now anymore. Um, but the the uh, the toroids that are used. In output filters, low-pass filters, for example, are um, oh, I get them mixed up. The ferrite versus the powdered toroid, or the powdered uh, um, iron. Uh, but the uh, those that are used in output filters are usually the uh, the T37-6, the T37-2, or a T50-. Six, I think, is, is what we use uh, here, and those are very frequency specific. And 
the mix of the toroid, the dash number, um, is what determines the frequency usage of the toroid. So if you're using a, if you want to create a low-pass filter for 7 megahertz, uh, 40 meter operation, you would go to um, charts that indicate the ranges of frequencies that the different mixes offer, and you would see the one that is best suited or most responsive, if you will, has the most permeability, which is the uh, characteristic of the mix, um, at 7 megahertz. Um, and then that would be the one that you would use uh, in winding your toroids. If a toroid is not uh, does not have great permeability at the frequency of use, it's not going to be, there's not going to have as much uh, um, magnetism, if you will, that is uh, that is created by winding the toroid. And it would not be a very high Q device, and you want to have a nice, um, a nice high Q device in, in your toroids. And again, in the other application, uh, for example, FT47, I'm sorry, FT3743 uh, is, is, is characteristic of the other type of, trans, uh, of, of core uh, material that is used. And again, that's the wider band that um, um, would, is most often used in interstage power transformers uh, such as T4. And that might be the only spot where we're using that one. I'm not sure. But uh, I'm sort of rambling a little bit, but that's uh, that's the general gist. Okay, yeah, I, I get how the you need to have the right core for the right uh, frequency. I guess I was more interested in T4. There is a one-turn link, and I think it's like eight tur turns. How do you deter determine what that turns ratio is? Yeah, before I get into that, Pete, did you have a question? Yeah, no, I just wanted to contribute something here in, in the subject of transformers. And I think what uh, one, one answer Peter, Pat is looking for is that uh, from the way it's drawn with the links being different lengths and so forth, is that one of the functions of the transformers here is to uh, uh, provide power transfer given the different impedances going in and going out. And in other words, uh, T4, from the way it's drawn, and I haven't built the circuit, but from the way it's drawn, looks like you're going from a relatively high impedance to the one-turn link on the output of the transformer feeding the uh, final stage. Uh, and that would be a lower impedance, which is typical for a transistor, a bipolar transistor, to take a, a lower impedance input. So that's why they're drawn the way they do, and that's one of the things that the transformers can be used to do. You can design transformers or buy transformers that are equal in impedance going in and out or have different impedances going in and out. Also, I wanted to point out on this business of uh, powdered iron and ferrite and so forth, in this kind of an RF circuit, you don't need, uh, there's, there's no real magic between uh, ferrite and powdered iron and so forth. You could build this thing perfectly well with air, air core. Uh, transformers with just coils of wire in the air. Uh, it would be larger, but uh, and and you would have to keep the coils away from other things. But uh, it would work just as well. Um, also, the, there's a spec for ferrite uh, that is many times used for interference suppression, and in this case, those are those uh, ferrite uh, devices that are on the 
ends of cords that are used in conjunction with computers. And in this case, the ferrite is uh, designed or mixed uh, for attenuation of certain frequencies. So you have to be careful in dealing with ferrite, particularly powdered iron is not used very much for this, that there are some ferrites that are used in transformers that are designed to transfer power, and then there's ferrites that are used for RFI suppression, where the idea is that the ferrites will absorb and heat up uh, if there is RF uh, passing through them. George? Did I time it out? Nope, nope, I pressed the wrong button again. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, so thanks for pointing that out, Pete. And I overlooked the obvious, <clears throat> where transformation is the main function of a transformer, um, or at least one of the main functions. And uh, impedance transformation is, is a big thing there. And specifically answering your question, Pat, the um, that one transformer, and I don't have the schematic up any longer, Yes, I do. It's now uh, a T4. So T4 has a bunch of windings on the primary, um, and there's only one link, one turn. Is it actually? It's two turns, I think. Two turns. No, does it just pass straight through, and that's it? I thought there was one loop around. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it, it goes in and then back out. So it's it's actually only. I think it only goes through it once. You're right, and it was just the way that it was done. Um, it is one turn. I'm looking at the parts list now. It is one turn. So that's the transform. Uh, um, the, the turns ratio is eight turns to one, and so that's a, a turns ratio of eight, and the impedance transformation is the square of the turns ratio. So in this case, it's a transform uh, an impedance transformation of 64. So um, I, uh, I I'm guessing, but probably pretty close, that whatever the output impedance of um, Q5 going into the going into the Q6 uh, amplifier stage, um, it's 64 times the impedance from uh, Q5 going to, uh, to Q6. So um, that's, uh, that's the main purpose there. And other transformers are the same principles. Even T2 and T3 are the same. Um, while I was, while, while Pete was talking, I was still trying to look up that transformer number, which is, uh, I still can't find it now. Where the heck? Um, no, I just can't find it. It's the silver cans. Oh, there we go. 10.7 megahertz IF transformers. Uh, 42. IF-123. That's why I couldn't find it in Mauser. So if you looked up that part number 42 IF-123, you would see that it's a 10.7 uh, reson uh, megahertz resonant uh, uh, transformer. And with appropriate slug tuning, we can tune it such that it becomes resonant very specifically at 10.1 megahertz, which is what our target frequency is for this, uh, the output of the mixer stage. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. Sure, and um, a really good site that um, I could recommend is uh, kitsandparts.com. Spell it out, kitsandparts.com. 
uh, Diz, and I forgot his call sign now, but he's been a he's a stalwart of the uh, QRP scene for many years, and he's uh, performs a great service for all of his hands by providing some great kits and parts. Um, he he offers, and we got a lot of our uh, toroids from him, um, all of the toroids from him actually, and he offers some great tools on his website for uh, identifying the, the proper mix of uh, <clears throat> frequencies to be used for uh, given toroid uh, applications and in different frequency applications and for uh, a calculator for determining how many turns you want to have in order to achieve a certain uh, inductance for, a, for an inductor such as L3 or L4 and things of that nature. So you can look that up and become uh, kind of well-versed in that, and that give you a great leg up on a lot of the stuff we're doing here. Okay. Yep, I, I've, I've been on Diz's website, so oh, uh, uh, good information. Thank you. Sure. Wayne, is that you in there? Did you want to say something? We're not hearing you, Wayne, if you got your audio plugged in or whatever. You see your light on, but nobody's home. So, uh, anybody else want to make a comment, make a comment uh, uh, before we... How about now? Yeah, now is good. Now is good. Okay, so is there some way to let Steve Burson, uh, Dave Burson know how much fun we're having in this, even though he's passed it on? Even though he's passed it on? I mean, well, no, no, he's, he's passed the project on, but I don't know. We're, we're having a lot of fun with this, so it was just really nice that he, he allowed this to be resurrected. Oh, you mean oh, like yeah. Dave Benson, the designer? Yes, Dave Benson. Oh, yeah, oh, he's, yeah. Uh, he's active on the lists, uh, QRPL. Um, in fact, if you want, uh, you're getting some echo here now, but that's okay. What you can just do, what I'll, what I'll do is, um, well, shoot, I can just look up his address right now. Drop him a line say, hey, Dave, we're using your, we're having a ball using the project, your project here in the uh, chat with the designers. And he'd get a real get kick a real out kick of it. All right. Yeah, maybe I'll do that. Thanks. I'm looking up Dave's address right now. All right. Dave's address is K1SWL. Kilo one shortwave listening to Sierra Whiskey Lima um, at earthlink.net. K1SWL at earthlink.net. And again, that's Dave, uh, K1SWL, and uh, he's the designer. So drop him a note. I think he would just love to hear that we're having fun with the service here. All right, thanks. All right, All right. anybody, anybody else? else? Oh, Kent, go ahead. go ahead. Yeah, I'm trying to get this thing to work, and I am having trouble. Um, I have it pushed to talk, but it says no hotkey assigned, and uh, I'm trying to get this to work, and I uh, have no hotkey assigned. I'm not sure how that works, so I'll have to go to the help page and get that done. 
Are you using, are you using a, a, um, um, a Windows a Windows machine? Uh, Roger that. Uh, Windows Vista. Yeah, it shouldn't matter. Vista works fine with this uh, with TeamSpeak. So, so what I'm what going I'm to going do to myself, myself is just kind of walk you through, through it. In settings, settings, you pull down options. options. You know the you know this already, 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 right? And in options, you go to right. capture, and you see push to talk, and the push to talk button, radio button is is indicated. Ah, yes. Okay. And what you want to do is um, click on the, I don't know what it says when nothing is selected, but right now mine is set. Um, right control P, but what you want to do is, is, is press it and then press a key that you want to correspond to your PTT. In my case, in many of our cases, what we do is select the right control key. On the keyboard, the keyboard so that's right. not very not often very used by use people. people. Once it says right control key in, in that box, then you say, say apply in the lower right-hand corner. Does that make sense, or did you see that? Uh, yes. Hang on a sec. Now, it says my mouse button 2. I'm sorry, it says what? Uh, it says mouse button 2. Um, if you click on that button, the, the rectangle to the right of the push to talk thing, uh, um, a pop-up will come up and say, press a hotkey combination. Right? Did you see that? So press that rectangle, and it should pop up in gray. should come up and say, Press a hotkey combination. Now I'm using the control key now. Okay, so you did it. You press the control key and then you said uh, save or use it or something, right? Roger, it, it shows uh, on that blue bar there, it says control key. Well, you did it then. Congratulations. Yes, that is uh, uh, that is a room for congratulations. I uh, some of this stuff gets gets me uh, a little uh, crazy. So anyway, I got it done. Um, I'm uh, finishing up the VFO section. I hope to have the uh, the, the current section done and uh, with some questions next time. So that's why I wanted to get the uh, the sound going. So thanks so much, George. This is a great. Uh, opportunity to learn, and uh, I'm enjoying it immensely. All right, Kent, that's great, and good work in getting getting your your client configured here with the right uh, with a, the right PTT. It's it, it's not as all obvious, so there's nothing to be worried about or ashamed about at first. It took us all a bit of a uh, a, a bit to get the hang of that, um, and then getting it working across platforms. Uh, is is easy, but again, you just got to do it once, and you're all set. And congrats, Len, on getting the project going. Keep her up, and uh, definitely chime in in future episodes. Here, we'd love to hear more about the progress that you're making. Um, great, but, yeah. Have a great night. Yeah, thanks so very much, George. You betcha. You betcha. Anybody else around here? I'm still here.
Okay, okay, Obi. Um, Mike, did you have something too? Yeah, uh, you may want to look over some of the uh, later stage posts that I made uh, on uh, the Yahoo group. Uh, I found some more errors in the manual and uh, uh, things like that, but maybe you can uh, update what you've got. Yeah, okay, I'll look at that. I did, last time, the, the timing is is unusual because I, you know, you made a lot of great contributions, of course, in the um, in the area of um, the TX mixer, and that's what I put into the manual. But and I thought that was before the date of my last update to it. Anyways, I'll take a look at it and make sure that I include it. Thanks, um, Obi. What's up? Not much. I was doing the same thing, listening, and 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 I'm I'm kind of stalling on finishing it because I wanted to kind of keep up with the group. I didn't want to go way too far ahead. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Um, well, actually, no worries on, on going ahead. Um, if you do go ahead, I mean, you might be able to offer us some uh, observations along the way. Of course, Mike has finished uh, one and maybe even two of them now. Um, um, I've, I've got mine built here. I've got mine from a long time ago as well. Joe's been doing his. Uh, Gosh, I'm not sure who else is uh, here now that's been making progress. Uh, but they said that they've been making, uh, uh, doing the steps along the way too. But anyways, it's 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 good. Glad mm-hmm. to hear that you're following along and enjoying it. Oh yeah. The uh, only thing I it's like I noticed was yeah, you have the the 1.2 version of the manual. Still has a few little little bugs in it. I saw it, calling out U5s where it should be U1s and so on and so forth. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. Uh, definitely pointed out to me, and it's probably what Mike was pointing out uh, in some of his other postings too. I, I do my best, and uh, okay. I get some of the stuff still uh, needs correcting, but I'll do that. Yeah, that's why I haven't really been putting it out because I see Mike's been taking care of most of it. Yeah, good. I'm glad there are guys like you, um, you both. That's quite helpful. All right. Anything else? I'm going to pull the plug here and go have some of my uh, fruit juice upstairs and start relaxing for the evening. Enjoy your night. Thanks, George. Okay, guys. Thanks. Uh, thanks for hanging in here for the after party. Um, oh, hey, Mike. Are you? Oh, Mike just left. Doggone it. Oh well. That's that um, camping trip. Yeah, I know. I was going to ask him about a thump. Some, I don't know, is anybody around that remembers the thump um, aspect of the, um, the 38 special project many years ago? I guess not. There was a very curious thump, and it sounded just like a thump when the, you released the key. Instead of just kind of going back over to receive, it would go thump, and it's a very distinctive sound. Um, one of the builders here... Um, experiences a thump now and I'm trying to figure out what that is caused by and if anybody else has uh, seen that but well that would be a great example Obi of if you were working ahead and uh, you know you might have experienced that and we didn't even get to it yet but we'll figure it out okay guys have a good night we'll uh, we'll see you if not before um, we'll see you two weeks from now on chat with the designers bye bye now